I want to look at what really causes malpractice cases. We're going to see more and more information coming out that says this is bad medicine, this is dangerous medicine. Injecting bad things into you always results in bad stuff. The phone is your enemy. Nothing good comes on the phone. We didn't go into this to look after chronic disease. We want problem and we want to fix it. If you want to take an emergency doc and make them absolutely impotent, it's you give them a non-fixable problem. So we don't like it. That's the summary. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is, of course, the December Risk Management Monthly. Again with the very beautiful, the very handsome, the very luscious Greg Henry. Feliz Navidad. And the very elderly Rick McKenna. <laughs> Thanks, Mel. Ladies... What are we doing? Well, we just picked up Greg, and I want to thank him for jetting in from Ann Arbor this morning. From the ice and snow. thirty yeah, yeah. Where it's only. Why do you have to thank him from leaving that? He left 15 degrees, and he came Michigan here where the sun is out, and it's about <laughs> 65, 68 degrees kind of thing. We just want to make him feel bad. Yeah. What are we going to talk about today, guys? Well, let's start out with mailbag. Okay. Has somebody written to us? Yes. Actually, there have been some people who have written. In fact, let me acknowledge a letter here from Ken Hansen. Ken writes, great stuff so far. What's that so far thing in there? Yeah, like, I know, you know that. Yeah, it's tenuous. <laughs> like it's going to go down. He's got a suggestion, however, and I think it is right on key here. He suggests that perhaps just spending a few minutes each month on a clinical entity like chest pain or wound management or orthopedics, he said it would be great to see how you three master clinicians. <laughs> what? what master debaters. <laughs> approach these high-risk problems, including the minimum items you would dictate into the chart, things that you would put on your aftercare instructions, basic instructions of the patients, and things that you would put down to show that you have done a really good job. So, Ken, actually, we are going to do that. Each month, we're going to do a clinical entity. I think we're going to do orthopedic this month. Orthopedics this month. Start with a kind of a simple one before we get into the hard stuff. So we're going to do that a little bit later on. So that's a letter from Ken. Melvis, you've got kind of a strange letter. Do you want me to read that letter? Do you actually want me to go with that one? We'll do it. This letter says, our local police have been requesting drug and alcohol screens on rape victims. We have a big problem with this and wonder what advice Greg might have for that. Now, we did that on a tape a couple of months ago, right? We did taking of blood and other things from people. And but those so are prisoners. Those are prisoners. These are not prisoners. Yes, exactly right. Although these are rape victims. So he's specifically asking, you've got a rape victim comes in and then the police ask, do a blood alcohol on this person for whatever reason. Greg, should they, shouldn't they? That seems to be very different than a prisoner. This is a victim. Yes. I think if there's a medical indication to do a workup on a patient, I understand that. I really don't understand this request. What this actually is, is accusatory of the person claiming that they were raped. Whether they've had something to drink or not had something to drink is a totally separate issue. I'm not sure how this would play out, and I think this should be run through hospital counsel and back through the city's attorneys to decide exactly what they want to accomplish with this problem. I think what we may be getting into here is an accusatory mode, looking at someone as potentially guilty or potentially not having adequate recollection of the problem because they've had a drink. This is dangerous territory, in my opinion. And I think the issue of, well... 
asking the patient to consent to that, they basically are probably not fully capable of understanding at that time what the potential consequences of them saying, okay, fine, you can take my blood if you want it. That's what they always ask kind of thing or without having legal counsel there. I guess after the fact, that could be excluded from discovery, but it is a little strange because I don't see that happening where I am. Yeah, I personally have not seen that back in Michigan where I am, and I'm not sure what the intent is of taking someone who is reasonably cognizant and carrying on normal conversation and requesting drug and alcohol screening on those people. Although I can see both sides of it. Alleging rape is not necessarily always the fact. Sometimes this is a spat between people and this is a way to get at the guy kind of thing. And so I'm not so sure. Maybe this stuff could be excluded later. If the person agrees, okay, I'm fine, cold, sober, fine, you can take all the blood you want to prove it. But it's going to be hard to settle this at the time of the incident. So I guess some policy would be, yes, we'll do it if the patient says okay, or no, we won't do it. I think if you ask people, would they consent to this, and they have reasonable mentation at that moment in time, it may be perfectly fine as getting their permission for anything else. But if it was a forced taking of sample, I think that would be inappropriate. How could this be used against the person in court? So the police believe that this is going to give them some information. What are they going to do with that information? Let's say they test above 0.08, which is the number we use for operating a motor vehicle. So now they suggest that you are legally intoxicated, and so you don't have reasonable recollection of the events which took place. Well, I think that's an extrapolation. That says at 0.08, the state doesn't think you're really totally competent to be driving a car. It doesn't say anything about your recollection of events and your ability to recollect those events correctly. And so I don't think it's the same kind of thing. We don't have a number that says, at this number, you are a blithering idiot. Well, we don't have that for operating a motor vehicle either. We've taken a number, understanding that some people at that level are perfectly fine to operate anything. Other people at that number would be incompetent to do anything. So what I'm saying is they will use this as an extrapolation, an inappropriate extrapolation. There you go. But it would still be an extrapolation to say perhaps this person was not cognizant, could not properly relate the facts that took place. And so I think it does have potential problems. So we don't like it. That's the summary. I'm not so sure that I don't like it. I think that if they asked, I would do it if the patient said okay. And that later on, it could be excluded if the attorneys and the judges think that that's appropriate. Here's the key. The physician's examination of the patient, are they awake? Are they alert? Are they responding normally? The physical and neurological examinations are way more important than anything else at that moment in time. What the alcohol is or isn't, again, varies person to person and their abilities with that. But if a person was carrying on normal conversation, did not have slurred speech, was not slurring their words, was not staggering, didn't have anything that looked like they were grossly intoxicated, then to me, it would be one of those things which would not be terribly useful in any way. But if they wanted to take the blood and the patient was willing to give it, then I think that that's probably okay. I would stay away from forced removal of blood in this kind of case. Although I can't envision that being the case in terms of this person's question. No, they didn't go into that level of detail, but I can't think of that same thing either. This wasn't the letter I was referring to when I made that rather derogatory comment at the beginning of it. The letter that I was referring to is the tar pit letter. Oh, no, this is the same letter. This is the same letter? (laughs) Yes, the same letter. Robert Hutton 
who goes on further after asking this question. And says, Hi, Robert. I enjoy the series, but wonder if it's time to find Billy's tar pit, as it seems most of the discussions have occurred at other times, in other CME tapes, and lectures by Greg over the years. And there are still some pearls, however, and it never hurts to replenish the memory bank. So we gave that erudite answer to his question, and then we get a little tarpedo and then we here. Get, then we get smashed. No, but listen to Robert. Yeah. He gives you the feedback sandwich. Greg, he's been listening to you for years. He's been listening to the other tapes for years, and we're going over the same stuff. But it's okay to go over Actually, it again. Actually, we, I don't think we've gone we over We have never, stuff. ever, never, ever talked about what we just talked about. Right. Ever. I think there's a lot of stuff that we've covered in just the first six months of this that We've never done on MRAP in the seven years that we've had it. I know no. you've never done it on EMA because no. I've listened to that for 20 years. No. And Greg may have done it here and there, but when Greg speaks to a big audience, it's 300 people. And you have to remember. It's a hit and miss game. Yes, this is the vast majority of the emergency physician population, it's hard to conceive of this, does not get emergency medical abstracts or MRAP. MRAP. It's hard to conceive of, but that's true. Who are But they're all people? getting risk management monthly. <laughs> they're all getting it. Okay. <laughs> all right. That's enough of that letter. Thanks, Roberts. Now what are we doing? Well, let me just summarize some letters which I have gotten, which asked a very interesting question related to something we're talking about last month. I had the question raised, a patient has now been admitted. Their care has been officially transferred to another attending physician. Orders have been written by that attending physician. The patient, unfortunately, is still in your emergency department. And now it's hour one, and now it's hour two, and now it's hour three. What the physicians have been asking me is, what is their responsibility toward this patient? And if something goes wrong, are they liable? So this is a little different than what we talked about on the November tape, which is that person who just got to your emergency department, and the private physician says, I'm coming, and we went over whether that allows you to not do anything, and we decided, no, they're still your patient, you should look after them. This is after they've been there for a while, they're admitted, they've maybe even got orders upstairs, but they just sit downstairs because that's the way the system works. Right. What are we supposed to do? Anybody who's been listening to this now for the last six months, you've got the answer. If they're sitting near you, if they're geographically located near you, and a nurse comes up and informs you that there's a problem, there's a change in the vital signs, the patient is worse in some way, the patient needs this or that, it's pretty hard to put up a defense that you didn't respond when they're physically located in your department. Now, when the trial comes along, you may have multiple people sitting in the defense box with you, but there is no such thing as an exclusionary rule in defendants. There's an addition rule. We can always add more defendants. Getting rid of defendants is very difficult. So whether you like or dislike or don't get along with the attending who's admitted, just understand at that moment in time, if the nurses come to you, respond, do what you do, is if there was no one there and they hadn't been admitted yet. Because when the poo-poo hits the fan, <laughs> no group of 12 people picked from the voters' rolls understand that you did not respond to another human sitting in your department. Yeah, it just doesn't pass the sniff test that you would do nothing and say, well, call the family doctor and advise him of the problem that the patients have. Tag your it. Well, the best thing would be you respond and call the family doctor and find out why they haven't been admitted yet. And it's a mistake to believe that we're going to give out the exact same care in the emergency department than we would up in the ICU. The staffing ratios are different. They have one nurse per two patients up in the ICU. We have, at best, where I am, one nurse for four or five or six beds. 
but you know what? We got to do with the situation that's in front of us. And to think that we shouldn't respond or that we shouldn't have to pay attention here, I don't think that that's going to, as Rick says, the smell test, the sniff test is not there. Your fellow citizens think you ought to do something about it. It does bring up a broader issue, too, about the safety of having patients who are admitted being held in the emergency department, particularly ICU patients. There have been some interesting papers that we've done in the abstracts that talks about increasing morbidity, mortality, and length of stay, particularly with ICU patients, but it extends also to non-ICU patients being held more than six hours after they should have been admitted to the hospital. And we're gathering this database over time now that says it's not just a matter of convenience for the patients about where they are, but that it actively affects their outcomes in terms of those things that I just mentioned. And it's one of the things that I think it's important for some regulatory bodies to start looking at. We wanted the Joint Commission, frankly, to take a rather aggressive view of this as a patient safety issue. The literature clearly supports as a patient safety issue, and yet it's kind of like, well, what kind of a plan do you have? There's not much in the way of teeth in this whatsoever. Yet, we're talking about, well, what's the thermometer reading on your refrigerator in your department is as something that is viewed as important. And I think that this is something that really, we're going to see more and more information coming out that says this is bad medicine, this is dangerous medicine. This is not just a U.S. problem. This is an international problem. A lot of the literature which is being generated comes from Britain. Also, uh, the Australians have been very good in this. Mel, your folks. Oh, they, peeps. Your peeps. They refer to it as access block down there. But it's the same thing. You can't move them from the department upstairs. And the rule is if you can't move them up, you can't get them out, you can't get the people in the waiting room in to be seen, so there's certain danger there. But the other thing is, I think the real question is, when do you actually begin the therapy for the disease? And there's no question if you're going to be intensively treating a pulmonary edema, looking at somebody with a bad pneumonia, that sort of thing. There are things upstairs which they can do, which in the emergency department, if we're sort of participating in a holding action, we will not get done. So the reason for the delay in length of stay in the hospital, increased length of stay, increased morbidity, that sort of thing, probably has to do with when we seriously get certain kinds of therapies going. And the truth is, in the emergency department, when the nurses are overworked anyway, we're not going to get them done. Yeah, we're good at first dose. We're good at initial assessment. We're not good at second, third, and fourth dose ongoing assessment. So you can turn this, no doubt, surely, as directors of ERs, I'm sure you can say, the reason you need to find us beds, the reason these people need to get upstairs is there is this evidence that they do worse if they stay with us, and this is going to be a risk management issue. Sometime soon, the lawyers are going to find out, and they're going to use this against you. So well, let's get them upstairs. Well, those of you going to the 2008 emergency medical abstract courses, <laughs> not that we would be uh, pimping those on this. Uh, I detect a plug. <laughs> there's a 30-minute lecture focusing specifically written by Peter Vicelli, focusing specifically on the data that hospitals can use, emergency physicians can use to show their administration why this is dangerous business. And there's also some fiscal implications. Length of stays are longer. If length of stays are Medicare patients, the hospital is not going to do as well. It's medical, fiscal, 
It's blocking up the emergency department. And this paper that talked about critical care patients doing particularly worse was done by the Society of Critical Care Medicine in the United States. It is not an Australian paper, and it is a huge study looking at large numbers of patients throughout the United States. And so I think that this stuff is going to become progressively more and more documentable as bad, 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 holding them in the ER. But that's just one person's opinion. Yeah, agreed. All right. I've got an issue for today, and that is I want to look at what really causes malpractice cases. And we always talk about failure to diagnose, failure to treat, failure to get things going. And I'm going to put forward a different concept to be bounced around with you gentlemen, and that is I think we get intellectual blinders put on us before we see the patient just by looking at the notes the nurse has written on the chart, and we get intellectually hijacked by certain words and phrases before we even start the interaction. And with emergency physicians listening to this tape, I'm going to give them six comments that are on the chart before we walk in the room. And just, if you're honest, what do you think of this patient when the nurses have written they have fibromyalgia, chronic migraines, interstitial cystitis, moderate irritable bowel syndrome, chronic low back pain, terminal endometriosis, and chronic fatigue syndrome. This is the patient you're going to go in to see. Now, if you're honest, I know what you're thinking before you walk in that room, and that's, God, how can I avoid? How can I somehow pass this chart to the other doc, or will the resident see this case first? Lord, may this cross pass me. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm really talking about is the fact that Whenever we're doing a medical legal case, what we focus on are the facts extracted after the fact, after they've all been digested, and we pick out the key issues to put forward. The problem with going into the room is it's in real time, and the signal-to-noise ratio, how much crap around the edges versus how much real information is coming to you is very difficult. And I would point out that the death rate in people who have any of the diseases I just mentioned are exactly the same as the death rate in all the rest of us. And I'm sure the bad diagnosis rate is even worse. And there is a certain thing, a certain professional blindness which happens when certain people walk in the emergency department. We don't want to be prejudiced people. I think what we want to do is give everybody very good care. But the smart emergency doc, when he looks at a list before he walks in, says to himself, Greg or Mel or Rick, he says, you know what? There's a potential here. I could let these interfere with intelligent medical care. And if you do that, you're probably safe. The day that they hijack you, and we'll get into some other techniques of where you become hijacked. But as soon as that process starts, we haven't even seen the patient yet. And we walk in and we're prejudiced. As soon as the nurse says, they're back again, is that good news or bad news? You see, if you were wrong on the first diagnosis, it's great news because they're back. We have another shot at maybe figuring out what they've got. And yet it's always said with that certain tone in the voice that, hmm, they're back again. And it's never a pleasant experience when you walk in that room. Well, the fundamental issue with these people is that they have chronic disease, some of it more real than others. But we didn't go into this to look after chronic disease. We want problem and we want to fix it. I can't fix your chronic back pain. 
I can't fix these things. And I know as I walk in to see these patients, there is dread and concern because I can't do what I want to do, which is fix the problem. It's like being a husband and wife. She talks, I want to fix the problem. She just needs me to listen. These people need me to listen. I'm not a good listener. I want to fix. I want to fix these things, Greg. Well, absolutely. You and I are emergency doctors simply because what all of those diseases sound like is internal medicine to us, you know, shifting dullness. You and I went into this business because we want to have a history that in 17 seconds or so, we have a control over that particular disease process which is coming in. Partially what we're responding to is our own frustration that these various disease entities are presented to us. What are our alternatives? I mean, all of these are pain syndromes of some kind. So what you're looking at is the giving of narcotics or the doing of nothing and taking out your frustration on the patient all of which have their downsides to us intellectually over a period of time. I don't think it's ever major disease which is a problem in the emergency department. I mean, if you and I see gunshot wounds of the abdomen or stab wounds of the chest or somebody in fluid pulmonary edema, we can see that kind of stuff all day long and are actually invigorated by the experience. Yeah, pretty sick. Yeah, but what wears you down is not terribly sick or not visually terribly sick, And yet there's a certain grinding down of the physician who goes from room to room unable to come up with a new answer in the emergency department. Well, I think one of the other issues is is that you anticipate in these cases an unsatisfactory interaction because you will not be able to resolve or substantially ameliorate their problem for a variety of reasons. And so there is this perception that this person is not going to be happy with what I have to offer them. And so it's not only this disease that is an issue, it's the expectation of the patient that they're going to be unsatisfied here. They're not going to be happy with what I have to offer them because what I have to offer them is not adequate. The best docs I've seen at handling this walk in and immediately disarm the patient and themselves by first acknowledging I'm sure you do have pain, and I'm certain that this is an unfortunate experience. The question is, what today in the emergency department can I do for you? What would be, and just ask the patient straight out, what would be a good outcome today? You're an experienced patient. You've had pain for a long time. What is it today that I could do in the emergency department which would make this visit worthwhile? You know, sometimes we have very exaggerated ideas of what the patient wants. They may have adjusted to the fact. They may have been to the Mayo Clinic. They may have been to this center or that center, been worked up to the nth degree. We see that all the time, particularly in headache patients who have been to many of the most sophisticated centers. They've had scans (laughs) I can't even pronounce, and yet they're there at 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday, and they want something at that moment in time. And sometimes we fail to realize that we ought to ask them, what do they want from the experience? Where can this go, which is going to have a positive outcome for you? I've got to admit, that's not something I ask because of this frustration, the concern that this is not going to end well. You start to have this antagonistic attitude before you walk in a room. And the other thing that obviously comes up is that they can have other disease, and this is what you were suggesting before. These people can be having their MI and their chronic pain syndrome, but there's so much noise created by these chronic diseases that unless you're not thinking, 
you're going to get lost in the noise. And so is there something new today? What brought you today? And then sort of the sociological thing you're asking, is there something different? Oh, yeah, got my usual pain and I've got crushing retrosternal chest pain. Ah, now there's something I can do. If I look back on my list of cases that I've worked on, I must have at least a half dozen back pain cases. Now, if we look at our own careers, probably five, six, seven cases a day of low back pain would not be unusual. And yet, it's when we go into that room and fail to look at them as we would anybody else, straight out, here's the history, here's the physical, because what we do is we block doing the reasonable things simply because they've been in five times or 10 times or 20 times with their back pain. I've got a case I'm working on right now which has to do with low back pain, 42-year-old male, abuser of drugs, and this time it's a paraspinal abscess. And he had noted in the nursing note is trouble with urination. Do you know what? It doesn't matter how many times he's been in. It's a drug user with back pain. To not think about that is not good medical care. And yet we're hijacked by the attitude when we walk in that room. Well, it's interesting you bring up the IV drug user and then for some people it's the alcoholic. Everybody has their own list that drives them particularly crazy. I can tell you at County, I think most of our graduates, because they see so many IV drug users and they see so many IV drug users that have something bad, that for many of us there now, even though we may not like to deal with them on an interpersonal level a lot of the time, we recognize that these people have horrible disease constantly because every week at M&M, it's an IV drug user back pain. It's an IV drug user with a headache. It's an IV drug user. With... We recognize that these people are sick, whereas for people who don't deal with them so often, perhaps they don't recognize that this is a horrible disease to have. Injecting bad things into you always results in bad stuff. So take them very seriously. Same with the alcoholic. They're going to have a subdural sooner or later, and so look for it. By the way, the patient who's injecting into themselves, and you know it, we're farther ahead with than the patient who we don't know that they're injecting into themselves. Because those people will come in, low back pain, multiple low back pain, and they haven't been picked up as having a substance abuse problem at that point in time. Or in nicer neighborhoods, in suburbia, in upper class neighborhoods, they certainly hide it better or they at least make an attempt for a lot of reasons to hide it better. You would admit, Mel, that the county population at L.A. County is a unique population in the <laughs> United States. It'd be very tough to duplicate that in Scarsdale, New York, or Gross Point, Michigan. And that you don't want to replicate it. <laughs> no, of course not. But nonetheless, the exact same processes are going on. And you're right, when you see it more, then you can suspect it. When it's a very occasional sort of thing, it becomes much more difficult. Now, I can tell you a little story from the other point of view, and I don't know if I've told this story on the series before. My wife has migraines, and occasionally they're very bad. And twice in 15 years, we've been to the ER. Does that make her a drug user? Twice in 15 years? I don't think so. <laughs> but twice in 15 years, it's been so bad, we've gone purely to get narcotics. And if you had to ask, what do you want? She would have said, I need something to make me sleep. Just knock me out. I know I'll be better if I could just get some sleep. And walking into that emergency department with a blonde, middle-class woman saying, I have a headache and I want narcotics, we just set ourselves up. So immediately we walked in there and those two times, separated by more than five years, the nurses are already looking at you like, oh, here we go, doctor and his drug-addicted wife. And it just was horrible from beginning to end. Right. 
And this is the kind of stuff that we're talking about. But we should understand that that sort of thing happens every day to set us up. I see notes or we'll get a message from the nurses saying they're in again. I look on the chart. We have a sheet that lists the visits. Yeah, six months ago or a year ago, they were in with their migraine. Well, they may have seasonally related allergic migraines. And if they need a shot every year or so, that doesn't sound bad to me. I think that doctors somehow... As soon as we have to put a DEA number on something, tend to look at everybody as a criminal. And I think that this is probably not correct. There are a lot of folks who genuinely need pain relief. The two most common drugs emergency doctors write by far at the 95% level are pain medications and antibiotics. That's what we give out. Yeah, I think it's kind of one of those things where you really have to be aware of the red flags and it's easy to get complacent because you work at a suburban hospital and you don't see drug users. But every back pain patient needs to be screened for those red flags or you're gonna be a defendant. These cases of infections, the literature is just rife with case after case after case of doctors missing back infections because they were prior history of back pain, they are IV drug users, that kind of thing. But had they thought of, well, maybe this person is not just seeking drugs. Maybe they are legitimate. Yes, they do have chronic back pain. That's why they got onto drugs. But I'm going to order a sed rate in this case, or I'm going to do a C-reactive protein in this case as a screener. And, and lo and behold, the thing is 75 in terms of the sed rate. It's kind of like, yeah. mm. I don't think that's the screen. The screen is reasonable history, reasonable physical. How many times do they actually check Yeah, but you're talking about cases where they're having bowel and bladder problems already. I'm talking about more subtle cases where, in fact, the temperature is 99 kind of thing. And the ones that could easily slip through the cracks if you don't have the sense that I've got to look for the red flags in every one of these back pain cases. And the same thing with the migraines. The migraine patients have more brain hemorrhages than non-migraine patients. We have to be attuned to the fact that every once in a while that migraine is not a migraine but is a brain hemorrhage. Well, let's quickly go over the back pain red flags because we've said we want to try and make this increasingly clinically useful to you. Some of the things that you can write on your chart, you can think about when you're looking after these patients, are what are the bad things that I don't want to miss that I could otherwise easily miss? Think trauma, think infections, think tumors, think equina or neurological disorders, and think vascular. So if we go through these for trauma... Obviously, you'll ask for a history of trauma. You'll also look at the patient and see if they're very osteoporotic and old where even minor trauma could produce a fracture. For tumours, the big things is age, age over 50, age over 60. Obviously, tumour becomes a much bigger problem. The single biggest thing is a history of cancer. In a patient with back pain with a history of cancer, this is a big problem. Ask for constitutional symptoms, fevers, chills, unexplained weight loss, night sweats in particular. For spinal infection, the really big ones are have they had a recent bacterial infection? For example, they've been admitted with pneumonia. They've had a recent UTI. Are they an IV drug user, which is obviously a ridiculously high risk? Are they immune suppressed, steroids, transplant, HIV? And then for both of these, both tumors and infections, it's very concerning when the pain is worse when they're supine, when the pain is worse at night, and when nothing relieves it. It's just they're constantly high-risk features. For quarter equina syndrome or other bad neurological findings, think saddle anesthesia. Think recent bladder dysfunction or bowel dysfunction, increased frequency or overflow incontinence, or if they have a severe progressive neurological deficit over time. So you're going to want to do an anal exam, a perianal sensory exam in those patients in particular. So think about those groups and it'll help. 
And then for abdominal aortic aneurysm, generally older person, often a smoker, trophic changes, loss of hair, poor pulses in the periphery, but mostly feel their belly, slap an ultrasound on there. If you do that, if you follow those red flags, within the space of 60 seconds, you can rule out many of the most subtle but worst causes of back pain. Let's go into the room now with the patient. We've been hijacked intellectually before we got in. Let me give some things which I think destroy the doctor-patient interaction and set us up. As soon as you say, and what's your problem today? And as soon as they say, well, you're the doctor, you tell me. (laughs) Now, be honest. Everybody listening to this tape who's an experienced clinician that makes them unhappy because now what they think is they've got a smart ass on their hands. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is it true or false? <laughs> I, I mean, if, if, that if, creates just you saying that a visceral reaction that I want to slap somebody. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> and the point is what it's interfering with is you and I doing reasonable care because they've come up with a phrase we don't like. Here's another one. Doctor, I have a high pain tolerance. What does that mean? They have a low pain tolerance. Of course, that's exactly right. But the point is, whether they have a high one or a low one, we're going to have to find a level of medication to help solve the problem, and we're going to have to still look at what it is. The other thing you and I don't like is the very nature of going to medical school is you're a tough guy. You know, you worked hard. You kept your nose to the grindstone. You don't like whining, and whining in patients turns emergency docs off. Again, UI are attention deficit disordered. That's why we became emergency doctors and not cancer specialists. And as soon as they start to whine about sort of lots of things, again, the quality of the care, I think, goes down. By the way, there's also that patient who it's always something. You see, if you solve that problem, (laughs) then they've got another one. Oh, and by the way, did I tell you about this one? You see, we honestly believe in our core of our souls, one complaint only, that's what you get. That's why it's called the chief complaint. That's why it's the chief complaint. complaint. Exactly right. Stop there for a second. So how do you deal with that? We have a resident right now who says to the patient, this is an emergency department, you have one problem. Which one do you want to choose? I'll fix that. The I'm problem, doing three. The problem that that patient has is that doctor right, right now. Right, right, right. Because we have an antagonistic doctor <laughs> yeah. who basically is kind of bullying the patients. One thing that's fair, though, for that doctor, let me jump in to defend the doctor a little bit. I'd like you to prioritize. Obviously, you have several issues going on here. See, the first thing he should do is compliment the patient and reassure them. You have multiple things going on here. Some we can take care of tonight. Others we'll have to take care of clinic or other places. Let's prioritize what the problems are. If there was one thing I could take care of tonight, what would it be? What would be number two? How long have you been working on these other problems? It's the sort of sincerity you come to the patient with to say, yes, you do have other things. What makes us think that people are going to have one complaint? More than that, for people who have trouble getting to see a doctor, you may be the only doctor they've seen in a year, and now they want to let it all out. Well, sometimes you got to let them do that. The manner in which you did that sounds like a little different than the manner that the gunslinger at county does it. What? You have nausea and vomit? That's two complaints. I'm sorry. One or the other. (laughs) Right. Nausea or vomit. (laughs) But you understand uh, his frustration. I understand. it's because, like you said, this is the first time or one of the few times they have somebody who's going to listen to them. 
and they want to get the whole list out there. Plus, at your hospital, they've been waiting four hours. <laughs> no, four? Come on. They've got plenty 12, of time. To, 24. <laughs> here's the book, you know. I've written it out here. The longer they wait, the longer they have to think about all those other complaints. Another thing which is absolutely a hot button to emergency doctors is the person who has a basically positive review of systems. Do your teeth itch? Uh, Does your hair hurt? Yeah, yeah. Does your hair hurt? Whenever you get into those sorts of discussions, then you actually have to have a little measure in yourself that prioritizes these various complaints. What are we going to look at? What aren't we going to see? And then again, the point I made about saying, I'm sure this is a problem, and I've set you up to see medicine clinic in a week for some of these other things lets them know that you're still looking at it. But there is no guarantee, and no one's ever put out that all healthcare problems in America will be solved in a visit to the emergency department. Let's be honest about that. This is what we can do. This is what we'd like to do. There's no possible way we can do today. And that's called honesty. And I think most patients can relate to honesty. Let me give you a couple of others and just see what you think about this. Starting at the beginning, Whenever you start to take a medicine-type history, see, you and I walk into a room, and if there's a four-inch laceration on the inner thigh of a 17-year-old cheerleader, this is an attendings case. There's no question about that. It's simple. It's direct. It's to the point. You don't want to pick up that chart that says weak and dizzy since 1952. <laughs> Fair. You walk in. You see that. And then you say, start at the beginning. And they actually do start at the beginning. <laughs> they start, well... It was a dark and stormy night in 1862 when my parents were feeling 62? <laughs> that, that's recent. Okay, what about in 47 when they fell off the troop ship coming home? I mean, all of these things sort of run together. And you and I are not psychologically set up to take certain of this stuff in. And again, that's why we became emergency doctors and why we don't practice internal medicine. But it's unfair to punish the patients. They don't know where they're supposed to go, I don't think. I think that's a key point because yeah. so many of the complaints that we see from patients are the doctor didn't seem to listen. And I think, as you're pointing out, it's important to direct the conversation. You just can't have a free-floating conversation that is not kind of focused because the signal-to-noise ratio may become so problematic that it's not clear what the heck's going on. So I do think it's a skillful process that you've elaborated that helps physicians try to focus on what brings you here this evening. What is going on tonight? My Let me just, uh, before Greg goes there, I just want to state for the people listening, what the heck are they crapping on about right now? And the issue that this is all about in terms of a risk management tape is that if the patient likes you, they don't sue you. So what you're telling me is tricks to have patients like me, even the ones I don't like. So continue. Not even just like you, but how to disarm yourself so that you can have a better view of any human who's coming in. We fall into traps where we start to believe our own crap. Yeah, you can't indulge yourself. You can't indulge yourself. Exactly right. You're not there for punishment. The patients didn't come to you for judgment. They came to you for help. Judgment is the province of the Lord. <laughs> not the emergency doctor. And you don't get to, like, sentence people to death just because you don't like the story they're telling. What really bothers us, and I had this happen the night before Thanksgiving. I worked in the department Wednesday night. And, of course, the families hadn't been seen grandma now for six months or a year. So now they've come home for Thanksgiving. So they come in with grandma, and they say, she's not right. Well, what do you mean she's not right? 
Well, she's not like she was last year. That's right. She's now 92, <laughs> not 91, and she's worse. And I think that if you want to take an emergency doc and make them absolutely impotent, it's you give them a non-fixable problem presented at 10 o'clock at night to which there is no answer or which to the answer is a social service answer. Because when I actually looked at what I was in the department that night, I was a social worker and not so much a physician. They wanted to know what was going to happen to grandma, who was going to take care of grandma, who's going to feed grandma, who's going to wipe her ass, who's going to button her dress, who's going to do all these other sorts of things. And when you and I are confronted with that, see, we like to talk about molecules. We love talking about milligrams per kilogram. We don't like talking about who's going to visit grandma tomorrow to make sure she's taken her pills, hasn't left the gas burners on, hasn't left a cigarette burning. All these sorts of things are terribly frustrating, I think, for an emergency doctor to look at. If you want to make an emergency doctor upset, particularly a young one, here's the phrase out of the patient's mouth that will do it every time. Have you called my doctor yet? Because the message the patient has just sent to you, particularly if you're a little bit uncertain, and I understand being a young doc. We were all young docs once. Rick, even you were a young doc. You took care of Lincoln, didn't you? I think you did. But you and I are being sent a message which says, you're not competent to take care of me. I want my doctor. Now, the smart emergency doc turns that around and says, very good idea. You have an excellent doctor, and we're certainly going to get a hold of him. He'd like me to start the process and get a little information first, get a little testing going, and then we will certainly get a hold of him. Because as soon as you reassure the patient that you will enter into the system, contact their doctor, they feel much more comfortable. What they're afraid of is this information is not going to be passed along and they're going to have to, again, put up with making an appointment, going to see their doc, trying to get things done. And you and I take call my doctor, I think, the wrong way. And that is they want reassurance. What you and I have basically taken out of that is that it's an affront to our medical capabilities that we can't take care of them and we don't like it. It makes us mad. Although sometimes it's quite legitimate that they have that concern. And many times I've seen cases where doctors suggest that they will meet them in the emergency department or that that's the perception of the emergency department patient. That isn't my doctor here yet kind of thing. And there's been no phone call, no communication. And the fact is your doctor isn't coming in. Right. But I think there's a way of saying that as well. The last thing I want to do is have a running gunfight with an attending. If I was to say, shit, he's never come in. We don't have to worry about that. He's never coming. I mean, that's a joke. What I would say is, you know, we haven't heard yet, but we work together all the time. Let me get things going. And that way, if he comes in, fine. If he doesn't, we can do other things. You can get the doctor on the phone. But what you don't want to do, I think, is undermine care from another physician, if you can avoid it. And certainly nothing will be accomplished if you get antagonistic about that phrase and overly sensitive and don't call the doctor. Those doctors should be called. They may want to be called. The patient wants them called. Why would you not call them? By the way, the new way of making young doctors uncomfortable is this famous phrase, doctor, how do you know? And the reason that's a challenge is everybody and his uncle these days can go on WebMD, has watched every ad on television for prescription drugs, has read 
some article somewhere, or if they have a chronic illness in the family, they may be tremendously educated on the disease, and that becomes a threat to the physician who's in front of them. The great battle about when you look in someone's throat and say, that doesn't look like strep throat to me, because you're not interested in giving them penicillin, the great phrase is, doctor, how do you know? Well, what's the comeback to that? Rick, what do you say? Well, I would say, based on the clinical criteria I'm familiar with, you don't have all of the other things that are traditionally associated with that, and I therefore don't think that it is a strep. If you really want to know, I'll be happy to do a test, but the fact of the matter is is that uh, sometimes those tests are inaccurate, and I wouldn't say you haven't passed the center criteria, and you have a two out of five, and I'm sorry, you don't get anything. Well, the smart doc understands intellectual jujitsu which is using their power and strength to accomplish your ends. When a mother comes in and says to me, little Johnny has fallen off his tricycle and he's, he's got a little noggin on his head. He's got a little bump. I know he's got nothing and everybody else knows he's got nothing. But mother is uncertain. Here are the mistakes you can make in that case. The first one is to examine the child before she gets in there. She paid for the magic show. And if you don't give them the magic show, you've done a disservice. They want to see you putting something in front of the eyes to see if they converge, using a pen light, looking carefully, watching the child walk. All of that helps to reassure the mother that you actually care about what's going on. The other thing is, as soon as she said, well, I think he needs a skull x-ray. Now, there are a couple ways you can answer that. You can say, geez, something left over from the last century, which, quite frankly, it actually is at this point. But what you could say is, well, you're obviously very smart. You understand these things. Here's why I wouldn't do one now on my own child and why I'd prefer not to do one on yours. But you're obviously very sensitive to what's available out there, and that's good. Thank God for that new article in the New England Journal, which talked about radiation to kids and brains and all that kind of stuff. It's very useful for us because now we can reemphasize the fact I wouldn't shoot dangerous ionizing radiation at my own child why would I do it to you? Although there are some benefits. If your child's intellectual capabilities are going down as a result of that uh, CT, you don't have to worry about college tuition. And there's a lot of kind of positive <laughs> spin-off there. You know I mean? Yeah, I think that's true, Rick. And I think that's a very difficult conversation to have in the emergency. You don't think that would go? I don't necessarily think so. And by the way, let's get one other thing on the table. You and I ask certain questions just because we want to be piss asses. Okay, as soon as you say, have you called your doctor yet? The way that's phrased in most places, no one cares whether they've called their doctor. What they want to do is spank them for coming to the emergency department. Again, we're the only business in the country that doesn't want work. You know, that's absolutely true. I fully agree that question framed in the way you did it is intended to annoy the patient. Exactly right. That's the only thing that that question is for, is to slap them around a little bit, to spank them. Well, every fool knows you should have called your doctor before going to the emergency department for something like this. The other thing is, there's a magic little window when you should come. When they look at a cut and say, well, how long have you been waiting? And they say, well, six hours. Oh, well, if you'd come in in four, we could have closed it. Well... Five of those six hours, I was waiting in your waiting room, Oh, okay. Doctor. In that case, fine. In that, in that case, it's okay. We can close it. See, we either see it too soon or too late. It's like when I was on surgery as a junior medical student. I always ask the surgeons the day one, do you want me to cut the knots too long or too short? 
because it's going to be one or the other. And I know that. So just tell me now so we can get into this thing and get it done. Well, you know what we haven't stated, which is, for me, the elephant in the room, is that we are saying, oh, we say these things, we do these things, but we all know that the nurses set us up for destruction so much well before we even get to the patient. There's an attitude that begins at the front window that if you don't control it by the time the patient's gotten to you, you're screwed. Right, right. If they're getting hit with these things that we all do, but we've just had the nurse do it and the other people at the front do it, we're dead. We have to teach everybody in the emergency department this stuff. There's no question about it. And it's not just you and I, but here's what happens with doctors. As I do doctor meetings, things like that, they tend to think, well, it's not me. It's all those other people. No, you're a part of it. The other thing is the attitude in the department really does flow from the top down. If the nurses see a certain way the doctors are going to handle the patients, that's what they're going to do. You give other healthcare professionals license to behave badly if you behave badly. Jeez, that's a fabulous point. I really, really, really agree that the doctor on duty sets the tone of how patients will be managed in that department with regards to privacy, with regards to pain medication, in terms of the speed by which they'll be seen. The time is an urgent thing for that doctor. It will be for the staff as well, to at least to a certain extent. But if you're kind of one of the gunslingers, they'll be piling on, and those nurses will basically emulate your negative behavior. Right. It's not what you say, it's what you do. You can give all the talks you want in your department about being nice. They watch every single day how you practice. And when you actually say to each patient, now, what's your pain like at this moment? We can take care of it before you go to x-ray. We can do this, that, or another thing. They start to learn that that's the approach that you take at that moment in time. And you know what? It does influence how they see patients. And I think we should be, instead of the critics, we should be the role models in the department. You're there for your eight hours or your 10 hours, whatever it is. Take a deep breath, suck it up, and behave like a professional, which means if you would ask other people or if you'd ask your own child about their pain or your wife about their pain, you'd ask them about their pain, about how they're feeling. In Michigan, it's cold now. We get them blankets. These are things which are behaviors, which if we all do it, then I think we're going to have a lot less medical legal problem. As we talk about this subject of intellectual hijacking and things which are said or things that go back and forth, I think that most every emergency doc who's listening to this tape can understand that his life is influenced by lots of little things out there. It's always easy to walk into a patient who says, I've got a foreign body in my eye when I was grinding yesterday. Okay, we like that chief complaint because we know what the answer is and we can find it either under the lid or looking through the slit lamp. We've solved the problem. I think the more poorly defined a problem is, the more esoteric it is, the more non-anatomically based it is, the less comfortable we feel in emergency medicine. And that's when our own anxieties and our own capabilities or lack of capabilities then come back to haunt us. And we sometimes can't admit our own blind spots and when we need to get help from another doctor. Well, the idea of help from another doctor really kind of comes up in a variety of ways. There are times when there are patients who push your buttons and you know that this is now a setup for 
errors to overcome, conflict between patient and doctors, etc., etc. I think in certain situations, it's perfectly reasonable if there are two or three of you on to ask your colleague, listen, Frank, can you help me out here? Would you mind seeing this patient? We've had some issues before. I owe you one kind of thing. There's no sense in creating uh, stress for the doctor and the patient when you know for a fact that there's going to be difficulties or there have been difficulties in the past or it's a gypsy and you flunk gypsy, you know, kind of thing. Right. I think that, let's be honest about it, that we sometimes don't see obvious things sitting in front of us. I think if a patient comes back for a second visit and there is a different doctor on, that's a good thing because let somebody else who hasn't been initially prejudiced by the patient and the experience Take a second look and see what they think is going on. The worst thing about a return visit is if you see them, you assume that your first diagnosis was correct. There was a great paper in primary care where they looked at, you know, they say in primary care continuity is good and having the same doctor see you over and over and over is good. But the fact of the matter is, is that occasionally doctors go on vacation and then other doctors will then see these patients and they looked at how the second doctor, the doctor who's taking over for the vacationing doctor, looked at these cases and found that very frequently they made diagnoses that were actually fairly obvious that the family doctor had not made because the family doctor, mind was closed, we got the diagnoses down on you, you know what's wrong with you, etc., etc. When in fact, a new set of eyes, bam, new diagnosis. Listen, my father told me for years, you know, I get kind of tired. You know, I've been getting up at night to pee. I've been doing this. Yeah, Dad, okay, fine, not a problem. And, of course, he's diagnosed when he goes into diabetic coma. And he'd had complaints for years. And we just sort of ignored them and wrote them off as well. It's, you know, Dad's bitching and pissing and moaning again and all the usual sorts of things. Sometimes you can be too close to the experience to actually make an intelligent diagnosis. And we just need to admit that sometimes. Can I ask you something that has come up a few times in our department and it's made me very uncomfortable, but the patient you described before, it's always one more thing. It's one more thing. And what I'm going to talk about now is the one thousandth percent, but give me an idea of how to deal with it. It's always something more. It's something more. And then I need a meal and I need some more Demerol. And calling the police or security to physically remove somebody from the emergency department, it seems to be incredibly high risk, but it also seems that every now and then you have to do that. Give me some pearls for dealing with that scenario. Well, if you can at least establish with the patient, put some stakes in the ground as to what this visit's going to be and what we're going to accomplish and when the end is going to be, at least you have something you can monitor. I would say that in my entire career of 31 or 32 years of doing this now, I've probably had to have somebody removed maybe twice. Now, that isn't to say we haven't had intoxicated patients and bizarre family members and things like that, but to actually remove a patient, I'm pretty slow to take that event, to get into that. I want to actually define what the outcome is going to be. And you know what? Have I had a couple of patients spend the night and sleep it off and get breakfast in the morning? Yeah, sure. Okay, do I feel bad about that? In the overall picture of the U.S. healthcare system, have I hurt anybody when the nurses say, well, it's 2 in the morning, he's got to go home. So, well, his family can't come get him till 7. So why don't we just shut the light off? We don't need the bed tonight and do some of that stuff. Have I been manipulated a few times? Yeah, I guess I don't trust an emergency doc who hasn't been manipulated a few times. If you've never been manipulated, you are a hard ass. You are a tough guy who, you know what, you've made mistakes on the other side of that line. No question about it. 
Well, you also county is like standard deviations <laughs> off the bell. The idea of even, even county it doesn't have even having a conversation about having a patient ejected from the ballpark kind of thing it's, is uh, pretty foreign. And you it better doesn't happen often. But it's these are usually <clears throat> social problems. There's clearly nothing wrong. And they want to be admitted just because there's a warm meal and a blanket. You need to make darn sure that you know that there's nothing wrong. Well, that's the thing that worries me is because you know that, as I said before, a lot of these people have something horribly wrong. It's like, yep. give me yep. something I can admit you for. By the way, most of these people do have something wrong. They have a mental health problem. Right. And, of course, there's nothing better for a good mental health patient to have than a codependency problem with a doctor. And it's almost like they're sucking the life out of you. I mean, every time you walk in that room, it's something else. And, oh, by the way, I, there'd be no way to pay the rent. And uh, I couldn't get the drugs. And uh, all of my kids have tuberculosis. And, by the way, I also have a brain tumor. Oh, and, by the way, it's always, by the way, and there's something else to the point where you feel that there's only one way out and that's for you to shoot yourself <laughs> because you won't be able to solve the problem. It's pretty obvious depending on how doctors are wired their ability to deal with these difficult cases is really very variable and some people are just have the heart of gold and day in and day out they just kind of exemplify the emergency physician that we'd like all to be. Then there's the others that got something going on at home they're working too many hours doing uh, working this hospital and another hospital kind of thing we often set ourselves up to be our own worst enemies because these things are hard to deal with as it is. And then we compound it by saying, well, we're going to do an 18-hour shift kind of thing. What kind of uh, attitude can you expect most people who are human beings to have after working protracted hours, many, many patients? I mean, are, you're going to get a little short. And in fact, the person that you're getting short with may just be the person that has got the real genuine problem kind of thing. So I think Sometimes we are our own worst enemies. Places that allow people to work 24-hour shifts when, in fact, it's not a sleeper. And in fact, you're going to be up 24 hours seeing patients. I think we are often our own worst enemies. Yeah, that's something from another generation. That's when we believed in the concept of wooden ships and iron men and what's the matter with you, boy, and how come the intern can't be up for 36 hours and be brilliant all the time. Most of that stuff was medical hazing. It was left over from old concepts and ideas. I don't know whether we've ever proven that we turn out a smarter, more mature resident by beating them for hours. I think that the resident kind of turns out and he treats the patients sort of the way we treat him. If we treat him well, he'll treat the patients well, that sort of thing. If we treat him badly, he'll treat the patients badly. Why? Because the patient is the bottom of the medical food chain. And the last person that he can crap on, particularly in a training hospital, particularly in some place like LA County, is the patient because that's the only person he has any power or control over. Yeah, we definitely talk about this in residency, and we sort of couch it as if you're finding that you're increasingly seeing the patients as the enemy, that they're there to give you a hard time, that they are just painful and they're out to get you, then you are the one with the problem, and you need time off, you need rest, you need whatever it is. And you do meet these people every now and then. Some of them you meet them straight out of medical school. They just hate the world. Right. It's like, you know what, you need to become a radiologist or something. <laughs> Less patient contact is better. But for the rest of those other people that are good, it's usually a sign of burnout. Like you say, something going on at home, too many shifts. Rick made a great, by a great point, and, and that is, if I take all of the phrases that we've mentioned in this tape that bother me, they always bother me more at the eighth hour or the tenth hour of my shift than the first or second hour. Really, the thing that leaves me is not my intelligence level at eight and ten hours. It's my sense of humor. 
And when you no longer have that certain bounciness, that sense of humor, hi, how are you, thanks for coming in kind of thing, and you start to walk in and say, yeah, what do you want? With that sort of Clint Eastwood, (laughs) make my day sort of attitude, then you know that it's time to leave the shift. We don't talk about this much in emergency medicine, but I think as we age, we're not as pliable. And I think the best thing you can do for longevity in emergency medicine is shorten the shifts. My own group is able to come up with certain places where I can work six hours, shifts, things like that. You know what? Do I make a little less money? Yep. You also know what? At this point in my life, that's okay. So when you're 95 years old, can you do a 10-minute shift? I have no (laughs) idea, but you know what? It's not a bad idea. Okay, now we promised our listeners, all three of them, that we were going to do something (laughs) clinical with regards to indicating the things that we think should be on a chart of a specific kind of entity. And uh, I think the one we agreed to do, because it was probably the simplest, and yet it still represents a substantial number of malpractice cases, is a... Uh, orthopedic-related case, fractures, infections, foreign bodies, those kinds of things. If you actually look at the data, the uh, orthopedic cases occupy about 14% of our money loss. It doesn't occupy 14% the total dollar flow, but if you look at each and every case, they're not big money, but there's a lot of allocated loss adjustment. There's a lot of expense on attorneys and suits for things which, quite frankly, can pretty much be stopped with some uh, simple rules, in my opinion. The uh, the funniest thing is that uh, the worst orthopedic injuries never get sued on. I've never seen in 32 years the case of somebody who missed a mid-shaft femur fracture. Emergency medicine has problems with x-ray negative or x-ray minimal problems. We tend to think that the x-ray rules out certain kinds of disease. Both bones of the forearm being broken is never a lawsuit in emergency medicine. It's just too obvious, too simple. The patient can't walk out with it and you can't make a mistake. The bigger problems are always the subtle problems and what we tell the patient is going to happen. The smart emergency doctor, I don't care how you cut it, never guarantees that something isn't broken. Never guarantee it. Just because you've taken a picture doesn't mean it's perfect. And I tell patients, the x-ray is maybe 2% wrong, 3% wrong. We're going to treat you as if you were fractured. We're going to splint you up. We're going to follow you back. Could there be something hidden there? Absolutely. I can't tell you the number of times I've looked at a plain chest x-ray after someone's been hit and said, could there be a broken rib there? Could there be a crack in a rib? Sure. Of course there is. I just can't see it today. We just can't find it. Um, I've essentially given up shooting, uh, shooting rib details. I think they're a waste of time. If the lungs are uh, inflated and the patient's otherwise well, I'm not going to be uh, irradiating them for, for no good purpose. But I think it is this minimal orthopedic injury that is the problem. It is not the major orthopedic injury. And now that we have diagnostic modalities that are substantially better than plain x-rays, you see all the time when people are able to show on CT scans that there is a, a fracture there. Maybe it is not a you know earth-shattering fracture, but it is accounting for your ongoing pain, your ongoing disability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I do agree that uh, it is 
prudent not to say, oh, the x-rays are fine, because they're occasionally they're not going to be. And they say, well, they say, he said the x-rays are fine. The, the converse is I'm also concerned about over-treating people who don't have significant injuries because, um, you, you know, you, by saying we're going to splint you, that's fine. But seeing a, a doctor in follow-up, well, to, to be very candid, the doctor's not going to do anything for a sprained ankle in follow-up except cost a, a person's money. They lose a day from work kind of thing, those kinds of things. So I think there's an ethical issue here that says we should not be referring every Tom, Dick, and Harry comes in ER to the, another doctor just to cover our butts. No, but I think it's perfectly reasonable to lay out a time frame and an expectation of improvement. There you go. The To say that, you know, in two days, if your ankle isn't better, you ought to see the orthopod is crazy. Because, first of all, the orthopedic surgeon, no matter what he's got, probably doesn't want to see him until the swelling is down. Number two, the uh, uh, it's not going to be better, no matter what the problem is in that length of time. But at 10 days, if this is not improved significantly, they ought to be followed up. The other thing is, it's, it, it is worthwhile to, uh, with certain areas of the body. And I still think that the wrists are a good example. The wrist is difficult. Bones overlie each other. And there is no question that we occasionally pick up, as you pointed out, when we do the CT at uh, seven or ten days later, we can now find that the fracture that we didn't see the first time. And so it is worthwhile, I think, to tell them we're going to protect you. You come back uh, if this isn't getting well. Now, the truth is most of our patients, 85, 90 percent of them, in seven to ten days are feeling just fine. And they go on about their business and they never follow up. But for those who are not getting better... We've got to have a pathway for them to know what to do. When I look at those cases which have been sued upon, particularly things like naviculars of the wrist, and, in, and particularly in people who work for a living, guys who are painters or carpenters or do something with that wrist, it was they believed that they did not have a fracture, and so they put up with it for a period of time and then went on to non-union. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at the chart, the chart is your lifeboat in this sea of medical adversity. If it says on there, if not completely well in seven days, return to work you up for a hidden fracture. And you, you talk to the patient. You talk to them with some candor. Are we perfect at this? No, we're not. You know, is there a possibility you're going to have to be seen again? Yes, there is. Let's say that's one out of ten risks. We see a lot of risks. We shoot a lot of films over a period of a year. And I think that that's a perfectly reasonable way to go. In fact, to think that we can guarantee this perfection the first time out with each patient, I think is incorrect. Because there's going to be things there that we will not see on the plain film. And you're right. It may, it may be when we start doing intelligent costing and charging that maybe the film of choice for the wrist will be a CT and not a plain x-ray. Yeah, we're finding more and more that um, CTs are better than uh, plain films. We all know that. That's probably what you're going to get and I'm going to get rather than a plain film. When, when our, We have a problem with our wrist. And um, the data on cervical spines is certainly unequivocal that CTs are better. I guess there's this gradual transition that we're going to be dealing with. When, when does the uh, CT become the routine for complicated issues like exactly like you're talking about, the 55 little carpal bones in there and that you're all overlapping. You see, I, I don't think that there is one overarching standard of care at this moment in time. I think perfectly reasonable people might at seven to 10 days shoot another plain film 
and see the uh, lesion. If that didn't show the lesion, uh, and let, let's pretend for a minute that people actually had to pay for some of this care, uh, the charge, not the cost, but the charge that we put on some of these things is expensive. I mean, shooting a, a CT and having the radiologist read the CT is more expensive from a charge standpoint than it is having a plain x-ray. And I think we need to be a little bit sensitive to that. I don't want to burden everybody with a major bill. And of course, the people who really get screwed are those people, not those with insurance, but those who actually have to pay this out of their pocket and are sent a bill by the hospital. Actually, did you see that there was a lawsuit initiated against uh, CEP America because they charged the uh, cash patients the same the, 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 their full undiscounted um, fee. The rack rate. However, they were more than willing to accept from insurance companies a fee that was substantially less. This is identical to the lawsuit that was filed against Catholic Healthcare West, basically charging the rack rate to uninsured patients when the uninsured patients said, that's fine, but the fact of the matter is, is that nobody pays this rate, including all of these insured patients. And now, just in the last couple of days, I saw that they have focused this class action kind of thing uh, on emergency physician billings, which is really kind of a very interesting attack because it is analogous totally to the suits that have been lost, actually, by Catholic Healthcare West and others. Yes, and, and, and there's, there's absolute validity to that. I mean, a real economist only talks about costs. He never talks about charges. And there has to be some relationship between the cost of what we do and the charge that we put on it. And right now in healthcare, there's almost no relationship to those things. By the way, while we're, while we're talking about uh, orthopedic injuries in that region, let's move from the navicular out a little bit uh, to the gamekeeper's thumb. This is another classic where it is often x-ray negative. By definition, it is x-ray negative because it is a soft tissue injury. So people will think, good news, no fracture. No bad news no fracture and uh, this is the kind of thing that requires proper preparation by the uh, by the emergency physician you've done your exam you know that the pain is over the ulnar collateral ligament to not carry on some discussion at that point by saying this could have a this could have a more serious injury we're going to splint you up and have it reseen if it's not normal that would be in my opinion a dangerous thing to do because the patient has been seduced into thinking because they don't have a fracture on x-ray they don't have a bad injury yeah you don't want it to be interpreted that the er doctor was wrong he said there was okay everything was okay when in fact there are things that don't show up on x-rays, which may not be okay. Well, the other thing is this concept in the patient's mind, which is, which is ubiquitous throughout the public, is that somehow a broken bone is worse than a soft tissue injury. Talk to anybody who does knees, and, and the fracture is not the problem. It's all those little ligaments on the inside which are the, are, are the issue. Frequently have to have that conversation with, uh, with parents, with their son and their football, with their football knees, that this isn't going to be solved tonight in the emergency department. And the standard of care for those people 
has now become when that swelling's not down, they get a uh, they get an MRI of their knee. Although you hear the patients say, um, well, thank God it's not a fracture and it's only broken. It's only broken. <laughs> exactly. oh, God. Oh, well, a... <laughs> but, but, you know, in some of this, we, we do have an educational uh, function. And one of those is to let people know, no, wrong on this issue, that, that you may need further care on, on this particular problem. Let me ask you a specific question. Any further documentational advice on the chart? Because that's one of the things that the, the doctor specifically asked in regards to so you talked a goodly amount about follow-up. Anything further on the exam itself? Uh, the exam, as far as I'm concerned, with any orthopedic injury ought to include the joint above and the joint below, just like we were trained when we were in medical school. If you haven't done that much of a look, you, you've looked adequately. I mean, if someone comes in with a sprained ankle, you're going to look at the rest of the foot, and you're going to look at their knee. I mean, that, to me, is, is logical. And if they've got a broken uh, ankle... Did they also snap out the, uh, of, the, of the fibula? To me, that's only logic. Another one is in any elderly patient who has, has any pain from the knee up, they've got a broken hip to prove otherwise. I just don't think we're that good at, at localizing that pain. I've seen people come in with thigh pains, uh, with pains just above their knee, and they still turned out to be broken hips. And to me, I am absolutely convinced that if you haven't examined the hip in an older patient, they come in with knee pain or thigh pain, you haven't properly examined the Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that because we did a paper in the abstracts not too long ago that pointed out that the biggest reason for missing hip problems in kids was referred pain to the knee. So slip capital femoral epiphysis, those kinds of things, they feel the pain in the knee. You examine the knee, you don't see much and you don't make this connection. Right. All those things which the old orthopedist taught me many, many years ago before we had lots of fancy tests. You know, I actually went to medical school before there was a CT scan. You know, I knew Rankin. Uh, Madam Curie, I knew her. Yeah, you know, Madam Curie, yes. Well, you, were, you knew her in the biblical sense, I'm sure. But, uh, and uh, was she hot is the question. Yes. Oh, she was hot. <laughs> Radioisotope hot. Radioisotope hot. But the... But the, but the uh, the old adage about joint above, joint below is, is perfectly reasonable. The, the next thing is uh, it is reasonable on the chart to look at the vascular flow of a limb. I mean, to, well, you, you to told us earlier about this uh, case of a compartment syndrome kind of thing. So it doesn't have to be a bony injury. You know, mu muscles and bones are cons and ligaments are considered part of the world of orthopedics. Right. So the idea of indicating that, uh, what are those five P's are, are in, you know, calf and forearm kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you is mean that? the pain. Pallor. Pallor. Pulselessness, uh, yeah. whatever. Paralysis. 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 Perishing with... And a paresthesias. Paresthesias. Yes, th those are the five. But the number one was pain kind of thing. And it's yeah. one of those things where it's kind of easy to shine it on. Kind of, but unless you don't feel, get that pulse, you're not going to be given a lot of leeway when you have a delayed diagnosis of a compartment syndrome. When, you, when you're looking at the chart, there's nothing as good in defense of a chart when it, when it says, you know, uh, x-ray uh, examined patient warned of potential hidden injury. That's all it has to say. And what you know is there's been a discussion about the fact that there could be another injury. Then you look down and see when they've set up the follow-up, what's reasonable follow-up. If they're seeing some patient the next day, probably too soon, most ankles, no matter what they've got, uh, if you're seen in the next 7 to 10 days, it's probably pretty adequate. There's almost nothing uh, in, in X-ray negative uh, radiology which you cannot see back 7 to 10 days later. 
But when you look at the healing times on things like uh, navicular bones, you don't want them out there for two months. All this phrase like, you know, see your doctor, if not better, no. Give them a time. Give them something that they can relate to, which is reasonable to the disease. If you've got a vomiting child, I want you seen back in six to eight hours. If you've got a sprained ankle, maybe seven to ten days and you're not getting better, maybe that's reasonable. Six to eight hours isn't reasonable then for that ankle? <laughs> no, six to eight hours is not reasonable okay. for that ankle, Rick. By the way, if they call you up and they want to be seen because their ankle's worse, see them back. I'm a great believer in I can see a lot of people back without much damage and without much time if I need to. Yeah, why would you not see them back? Maybe you miss something. Maybe that splint is on too tight kind of thing. Maybe it, maybe there is no pulse now. I mean, the patients really are not the enemies. And another, another absolute in orthopedics in the emergency department is if you ask somebody to put on a splint, and almost all of us have somebody else do our splinting for us these days, check the splint before they go home. Because the splint should be just that, a splint. You need to have uh, adequate comfort. You need, to have, you need to have it in the correct position. And the last thing you want is to have it compressive in some way that's interfering with blood flow. That's not right. And I'm told uh, from the uh, charging point of view that you have to have a note in the chart that indicates that you've checked that splint and it is, is adequate for um, what you've asked them to do. Whatever, whatever you want them to do. The other thing about splints is just a little warning of what I've watched is the newer splints, which, which are not the non-plaster anymore, are still exothermic, not at the level that the old plaster splints were. I have at least two cases where people put on posterior leg splints, leaving the leg lying against the cot, and the heat was so great from the splint that it blistered the skin and caused an infection. The newer splints are probably not as bad simply because the new materials do not give off the same amount of heat that the old plaster did. But you know what? Think about it. With orthopedics, it's all about uh, good charting and setting expectations. Uh, We looked at your x-ray. We don't see a fracture, but that doesn't mean there isn't one there. We're going to have our specialist look at tomorrow. You might get a call and come back if there's worsening pain. Now for something a little bit more serious. Hey, wine of the month is causing a lot of controversy. It is. It's very Uh, concerning. Yes, very concerning. I usually don't push any product, but I will say this, that the November 15th issue of the Wine Enthusiast has got to be one of the best I've ever seen because it's the best buys. Great wines under $15. That's what I want to read right there. (laughs) This is a great addition. Let me just tell you that right now. We're going to only feature one of those on this show, but this is a good one. And this is the name. It's called Big Ass Zinfandel. That's the name. I'm sorry. That's the name. I have had it. Got it at 12 bucks a bottle. It's Sonoma County, and it carries with it the wine enthusiasts. You know, they do that up to 100 score. 100 score wines are 500 bucks a bottle, that sort of thing. This gets a 91 in their taste testings where they kind of laid it out. They had good people tasting these things. A 91 at less than 15 bucks a bottle. It's the 2004 Big Ass Zinfandel. That's a Sonoma County wine. And for all of you who are looking for a great wine, in fact, the write-up on this is unbelievable that when they had the wine connoisseurs, people like that who were taking a taste, this one hit big time. 91 is high on the list. In fact, if you look at a lot of their ratings, 
Those are 50 and 60 and 70 and $80 bottles of wine. And you know what? In two hours, it's just urine. So you might as well enjoy it. There you go. Do you have a beer of the month for us? No, I don't. But I was going to comment. Those of us who aren't into wines particularly, this is kind of like the price-earnings ratio. Absolutely. Uh, kind of thing. The price is 15 and the uh, earnings in this case are 91. Yep. A very unusual ratio. Yeah, very unusual. With, and you know what? signal, the buy signal. This is the buy. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of the December edition of Risk Management Monthly. Thank you, girls. We'll see you next month. Bye-bye. Bye.